Right. Good morning. It's so good to be with you. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, I don't know if you found a way to help with all the floods in Southeast Texas or in Louisiana. We're not taking up a special offering today, but want to point you to a couple of places or one specific place where you could help. The Church of Christ Disaster Release Fund is a trusted organization. I've done some work with them in the past, and I am still in talking to numerous church leaders, nonprofit leaders who live in Southeast Texas, primarily the Houston area, because a lot of people, a lot of leaders in that area who have been affected by the floods still are not sure exactly what they are dealing with or the extent of damage to property and to a lot of their stuff. So uh, they're going to be ongoing conversation for weeks to come. If there is anyone here who is interested in leading a team to go to help with cleanup, which is going to take weeks, if not months, will you please talk to me today uh, after church, not during my sermon, but after church? Um, should be an email, text me, call me this week. Would love to help organize possibly a Sycamore View team who's willing to go. Uh, in two weeks, I'm starting a series in Romans chapter 8. It's going to be our fall series. It's going to go for about eight weeks. And I invite you to read, I invite you to memorize 39 verses in Romans chapter 8. One of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. I can't wait to unpack it for you. I've been reading it constantly for the last few months, letting it get inside of me, and I can't wait to unpack it for you. So I invite you to spend some time in the coming days reading Romans 8, and in two weeks we're going to start a series on that. Uh, So um, January 2014, the first Tuesday of that month, the first Tuesday of 2014, I was in Orlando speaking at the National Conference of Youth Ministers. I took my family down there where we were giving passes to Disney, so we were soaking up the whole Orlando experience. We were at Disney on the first Tuesday in January, and it was 75 degrees. Six days later, I found myself in Barrow, Alaska, uh, where it was negative 65 wind chill. I went from 75 degrees to negative 65 wind chill. You do the math of the difference, all right? Uh, so I have a book coming out in about a week and a half. It's called Reentry, and I wanted to take two weeks to walk you through, to reteach. This is stuff I taught back in 2014, some of it is, to reteach some of this material, to place it in front of you because. All three books that I've written now, it's an extension from my life and ministry and the life of this church in the city of Memphis. And what this church has done to teach me about the journey from darkness to light has now been put into a book where my name's on the cover. But in many ways, I think the church is who wrote this book. It's the journey that we're on as a church. We want to help move people from darkness into light. For those of you who find yourselves in forms of darkness, we want to help usher you into the light, point you to the light. So I traveled up to Barrow. Uh, it's the northernmost city. In fact, if you go to that next image, just to give you an idea of how far north Barrow is. So if you go on cruises, you don't go up to Barrow. It's, it's flat. It's, it's flat as Kansas up there. You can see forever. Um, there's no vegetation, no trees, no flowers, little tundra. Very few animals survive there. They got, it's a whaling community. There are whales. It's, they have polar bears a few white rabbits. In the summertime, they get some birds and mosquitoes. That's about it. Any building I went into, there were signs talking to you about polar bears. 
and that if one approaches you or you find yourself close to one, there were bullet points of what to do and how to back away. And then in the bottom right corner of all of these signs was if you are attacked by a polar bear, there was one bullet point and it said, defend yourself, all right? It was like, you're probably not going to make it. Try to get a punch in if you can. So I traveled up there uh, because I've been doing research. This is a community that goes about 65 to 70 days every wintertime without seeing the sun. And, and I'm not just talking about Barrow, but if you drew a line straight through the middle of Alaska north, if you go above the Arctic Circle, a lot of these smaller towns, there is a peak season in the year for suicide attempts and for depression. And it's not in the 65 to 70 days of darkness. It's when the sun comes back. And the problem, what research has showed, is that there can be a challenge to reentry into the light which got my imagination going because I think that applies to us no matter where we live, this re-entry into the light. What do you do when you've been through a dark season, whether it's grief or moral failure, bankruptcy, depression? As we're going through darkness and we're trying to re-enter into the light, it can be a challenge because maybe relationships that have pulled us down in the past are still alive, we still still around us. And what do you do when all these elements remain, yet you're trying to find this new way into life, joy, peace, and love? So uh, what I love about this whole idea of reentry is this applies to almost every facet of life. It applies to you as an individual because if you haven't been through a dark season or you're currently not going through one, you're going to have some storms in life that are going to hit you. It doesn't just apply to an individual, but to families and communities as loved ones pass away, as cancer hits. There's towns and cities that go through seasons of darkness as we try to find a new way into the light. So this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. This is like my go-to book. I don't know if you have one in the Bible. If you, if, when you have moments or days when you're in need of a, just a fresh word of God or a, an encouraging word of God, my go-to place is the book of Ephesians. And I want to walk you through Ephesians and how the ideas of roots and rhythm take place in Ephesians. And I'm trying to be careful because I'm not, I don't want to place my ideas on the book of Ephesians, but I do want to show you this morning how in the book of Ephesians, Paul is concerned about helping people establish their roots to have a healthy rhythm in life. I love the book of Ephesians for a lot of reasons. One is it's a multicultural, multi-ethnic church that's trying to learn how to live this life of reconciliation. It's a church that many of them grew up in, in Ephesus, which meant they were surrounded by all kind of pagan worship, uh, idolatry, temple prostitution, um, witchcraft, all forms of magic and Harry Potter at all once probably, probably uh, lived in Ephesus. Anywhere you looked, you could smell, you could see, you could taste, you could touch forms of immorality. So Paul's writing to these people trying to teach them what it means to be faithful to disciples and followers of Jesus in a place where pagan worship is on the rise. Uh, so I, I gravitate to this book because it's a book that teaches us how to navigate darkness to light, how to be leaders that are leading people into the light, how to live a life of joy, hope, peace, and love. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, let's begin there. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 3 through 14, uh, here's, and if, if you underline in your Bibles, and you may not underline in your Bibles, but if you do, I just want you to highlight words throughout Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 that either resonate with you or highlight words that define what your identity is in Christ. It goes like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. For reading of the word this morning, the church said, Amen. This is the longest sentence in the Bible. From 3 through 14 in the Greek, this is one sentence. Now, thankfully, translators came through later on and put some periods in there because you may not be able to hang on for the ride of the longest run-on sentence in the Bible. It's like Paul starts talking about the glory of God and who you are in Christ, and he couldn't stop. So he just starts talking about living to the praise of his glory, and it becomes this one long run-on sentence. Do you know those people who are like one run-on sentence waiting to happen? Their life is just... You have conversations with them, and it's like common, and, and just the sentence goes on forever. Uh, I don't want you to point at those people this morning. Just do you know them, right? I, I was, uh, my, my children taught me the power of Ephesians 1. A few years ago, I was preaching through Ephesians here, and uh, it was one night. My wife was out of town like she is this weekend, and Casey was gone, and Casey's part of our, we, we, tag team, the bedtime routine as we pray with the kids, tell stories, and share some of life together. And uh, she sings because they don't want me to sing over them. And then, and then we tell them goodnight. But she was gone, so I had the whole thing. And my boys came into the living room right before it was bedtime, and they said, Dad, we, tonight we want to sing a song for you. We just want to make up a song. So they, th- this was a few years ago, but they pulled out like their, their play guitar and a drum set. And this night they wanted to make up songs about God. So they weren't singing like Jesus Firm Foundation or Shout Hallelujah. They started making up their own song. And, it, and what my boys would do, and it's not, I mean, this is a few years ago. They were like six and four, is that uh, they just started making up a song. And what they would do is they would just make a statement about God or faith or things they had learned in Bible classes. And then they would build on that with the next statement. So the song went something like, God, you were the one who created. And because you created you love what you created. And because you love what you created, you sent Jesus to die. And sometimes there would be little pauses in between sentences, but they were just building this song. And it was getting close to bedtime. And this song got seven minutes long, and it was still going. And I thought, oh, well, it's, you know, it's close to bedtime, but if I tell them to stop the song, I know who my boys are. They would probably look at me and be like, yeah, you're some preacher who loves Jesus. You won't even let us sing about him, all right? So... They kept going, I am not preacher exaggerating for you this morning, all right? It got the minute 23 and the song was still going. And there were times I would just repeat phrases they had already said, but the song just kept going and going until finally I had to do what like choral directors do and be like, oh, boom, you know, come to a stop. Guys, seriously, brush your teeth, let's go to bed. I put him to bed and I sat down and I started reading through Ephesians again that night because I was preaching in front of the church and I was like, oh my goodness, my boys just taught me what Ephesians 1 is. That there's this big difference between a run-on sentence and run-on praise. And what Paul experienced in Ephesians 1 was just run-on praise. It was like he starts talking about how great God is and who we are and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it's just this sentence that will not stop. 
What happens in Ephesians 1, 3-14 is that there is this identity and this foundation that Paul is giving the church. If you read Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about identity. You will not find a command. There's no imperative in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's all about identity, foundation, what are you building your life on, how the church is coming together. The last three chapters of Ephesians has over 35 commands. So for Paul, it's like once we establish identity and foundation, then we can talk about what it means to live out our faith and walk out our faith. But to begin with, it's identity and foundation that has to be there. Um, in Christianity today, there are, there are ways that we can stand up in front of a crowd of people and we can talk about conversion without ever talking about transformation. Um, there are ways for us to talk about conversion as if it is about a destination where you go to instead of a transformation that comes into your life calling you to be a brand new kind of person. There are ways that we can call people to trust in God to secure their eternal future without ever laying a foundation for people to build everything in their life on. And for Paul, there's no such thing as you having a salvation with a destination if you don't have a foundation that is rooted, that you're rooting yourself in it, an established foundation. So to begin with, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down identity and foundation. It has to be secure. Now, it's never too late for you to build this foundation, for you to trust in God to be this foundation that you can build your life, your family on. When Casey and I got married just over 15 and a half years ago, I remember we, we, were, we were the couple in college. Uh, so we were at a Christian university in Abilene, and, and anything that was offered for premarital, we were doing it because we wanted to be ready. So we were going to premarital counseling, premarital sessions. We were watching the Tommy Nelson, Songs of Solomon series, anything that was offered. We were diving into it because we wanted to be well prepared. And I remember some of those conversations. We had people who were urging us that you've got to take time. We came from healthy homes. So we had a foundation. But we took time together before we entered into marriage to talk about what is the foundation we're building this marriage on. What are those three to five things, concrete convictions that we know are true without a doubt. So whenever we go through tough times, we know what we can fall back on. What's that foundation for you? It's a foundation of Jesus. But if you had to define three to five concrete truths that you know without a shadow of a doubt, these things are true, what would they be for you? I launched a podcast a couple of weeks ago. You can check it out. It's called The Reentry Podcast. And I'm bringing on different guests to talk about how they've navigated seasons of darkness. And this is one question I ask every guest. What are the roots in your life? What's keeping you grounded? What is your foundation? When you've been through tough times, I have a podcast coming out Friday with one of my, uh, the guy who did our wedding. He was Casey's youth minister. He's been in youth ministry for 30 years. His name's David Frace. In 1999, he was driving. It was Casey's youth group. Casey was in the van behind the bus David Fraze was driving when he, um, a, a truck carrying a fifth wheel was coming um, from the other side of the road and crashed into the bus, killing six girls in Casey's youth group. And I talked with David Fraze and just processing that grief and that darkness and what kept him rooted. And did he ever think about getting out of ministry because the grief was too strong and the hurt was too great. And he was able to process and talk about how there were these established roots in his life that he was able to fall back on. So for you, what is that identity in God? What is the foundation for your life? Now, midway through Ephesians... Paul's going to pray over the church. It's one of the longest prayers you have Paul pray. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, here's what he prays. 
And a lot of times when I'm pacing this room, praying over this church, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, that's what I come to as I pace and pray over you. It's for this reason I kneel before the Father. And I love this. I didn't see this until a few years ago. That for Paul, it's not just a matter of telling people what he is praying for them. He is telling them the posture that he takes when he does pray for them. It's not just I'm praying for you. I'm on my knees praying for you. Now you have the image of a guy who loves the church, who's pleading for a church. It's not just throwing up this one quick prayer of God, just bless the church in Ephesus. It's he is on his knees pleading for these people, kneeling before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So as, as I was telling you a minute ago, Ephesians, the first three chapters is all about identity, and this is the end of this, this part where he's rooting people's identity, giving them a foundation, and then he's going to make the turn in chapter 4 to start talking about commands and some imperatives and things you do to live out this faith. And here what he does is he's praying over these people, on his knees praying for them, pleading for, with God, to God, for them. And what he's praying for is they will have these established roots in love, something that's firmly established in who God is. You get the sense of a leader who deeply loves his church. A couple of weeks ago, we had an 84-hour prayer vigil where for 84 hours, some of you came in this room and we had this unbroken chain of prayer. And as I've had feedback from many of you of what that experience was like, one highlight for so many of you was to know that there were shepherds who were here ushering you into a room of prayer, praying over you before you came in here. It's great to have leaders who, are, who deeply care about ushering people into the presence of God. I came across an image. Now, every image and metaphor breaks down at some point, all right? But just let, let's give it a shot. If you go to this next image, I came across this not too long ago. This is a pack of wolves. And some of the research on wolves, and I, I haven't checked to see if this is true with wolves all over the world, but what was, what was placed in front of me, and I thought this was so cool, is somebody writing on leadership. As you see over here, um, I guess to your left, these three wolves that are out in front, they are the oldest in the pack. They're the oldest, they're the sickest, uh, which uh, they, they've just worn out by life. They're also the wisest. And it's the oldest in the pack who set the pace for all the others to make sure these other young ones don't get out chasing rabbits or going to the right or to the left. They're setting the pace. They're, they're out in front. Then here in, in, in the yellow, you have five who are the strongest and the bravest, the most courageous. And they are in the front. So if there is a battle that takes place, if they are attacked, they're in the front where they can perform protect the old ones who are in front and those who are behind. Now, back here in the green, you have the square. And those are five who are also some of the strongest and the bravest. And they're in the back to protect and to fight if a battle breaks out, if they are attacked. Right in the middle, you have the youngest. You have the babies. You have the weakest. You have those who's, who can easily be distracted. And they're right in the middle, surrounded by those who are the strongest. And then in the very back where you have the arrow, you have the leader of the pack. And the leader is in the back. So he can see everything that's going on, or she can see everything that's going on. 
so that if someone gets distracted, they can help pull them back on the way. If, the, if that leader is able to see an attack coming, he's able or she's able to warn everyone else of what is happening. And, and I know as we think about, I'm, I don't want to call our elders wolves, all right? The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't talk about wolves in, 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 good, in, in good terms. They're shepherds. They're leading people to green pastures. But there's something powerful about this image of moving people along the way and having a leader who is looking over the whole pack, making sure they're headed in the right direction. And if they are off, putting them back on the path to where they are going, being aware of any attacks that are coming to keep them moving where they need to move. And you get this sense in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, it's driving the heart of Paul. He's looking over this church, wanting to keep them on this straight and narrow, keeping them focused on what they want to be, need to be focused on, and establishing their roots, praying for them to have established roots. It's never too late for you to dig some roots if you don't feel like you have them. But the way God often prefers for roots to be established is using a small shovel to dig. Some of you want some established roots. And there are some decisions you can make, the ways of trusting in Jesus, being baptized into Christ, choosing to go in a new way, but having deep roots that are firmly established, that put you in a place where you're bearing great fruit in your life. It doesn't happen overnight. It's perseverance. It's dedication. It's devotion. It is also possible, if you think about some trees or bushes or vegetation, it is possible to be uprooted and to be rooted in a new place. It has to happen quick. It's possible, though. And for some people, you need to be uprooted for what you've allowed your roots to be established in, to be placed in more fertile ground where the gospel is sinking in, where you are being grounded in Christ. This whole idea of re-entry, I love talking to teenagers, and I love talking to college students about it. Because when you think about how you navigate dark seasons, how, you, how you're pursuing the light, I don't want people to wait until periods of darkness and grief and brokenness hit for them to start asking questions of what they're going to root their lives in. I want people to be established now, to be forming concrete convictions that you believe in now so that when the storms of life come, you have a foundation that is set. You are rooted in what is important and you will not be moved. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. So Paul established his identity and foundation. He's praying for established roots. <clears throat> in Ephesians 6, in verse 10 through 13, he's encouraging these people about what their mission is. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And then Paul goes into talking about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of, of peace, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith. And Paul is equipping these people not to play it safe in life, but as they live in the city of Ephesus with a lot of pagan worship and idolatry and immorality, he's equipping them how to be a church that's engaged in the context around you. That the call of the gospel is not for you to escape from the world and to play it safe in your safe Christian bubble. It's to call you to root yourself in God and then to get in the mission, be a part of the rhythm that's 
in how God is changing and transforming the world. Now, a conversation I lead our staff in, usually once a year, is in Luke chapter 6, Jesus goes from solitude where he prays all night with God to community where there's meaningful relationships, to ministry, service, compassion, and justice. And, I, and it's a helpful question for me to gauge the health of my own heart and how I'm, how I'm rooting myself in God and the rhythm I have in life is to ask myself, okay, how am I staying in this rhythm with God where I'm making sure there's some solitude in my life, where I'm honoring prayer time and silence and rooting myself in the Lord. And I'm also engaging in meaningful relationships because we cannot walk this road alone. And I'm also engaging in forms of justice, compassion, service to make sure that my faith is active and alive. Some of you are more wired for solitude than others. Some of you are more wired for relationships. Some of you are more wired for service and compassion. But if we don't have a foot, if we're not being, allowing God to call us into these areas where we have this imbalance of faith, because if you, are engaged, if you want to engage in forms of compassion and justice, but there's nothing rooting you in the source of life, you burn out after time. You have nothing to give because you aren't allowing God to pour into you. If you're only honoring solitude, yet there's no service and compassion in your life, you become an inactive believer. So it's this rhythm that God is calling us into. Now, here's what I think is so important. Is how do we navigate these dark seasons? And I want to be careful how we talk about language of light and darkness. Because the Bible uses both. The books in the Bible that talk about darkness the most are also the books in the Bible that talk about light the most. But the Bible talks about light way more than the Bible talks about darkness. And where I want to, where I want to encourage the church and encourage you is I'm, we can't overcome darkness and as we're navigating darkness, our conversations can't only be about darkness. It's got to be about, about the light. Let me, let, me, let me take a different approach, all right? Um, <clears throat> Brene Brown. She is this best-selling author, a researcher at the University of Houston. Uh, one of her TED Talks on shame and vulnerability is one of the top five TED Talks throughout the world. It's been listened to over 30 million times. So she started her research years ago. She started her research thinking about uh, pain. Because what she discovered is that in our English language, we have a lot of language, we have a lot of words to describe pain, but we don't have many words to describe hope and joy. What she found was that she talks about connection. So a lot of her research is about how you connect to other people. She's a faith-based, she's a believer in Jesus. But she, a lot of her research is about how you connect, connectedness, because we were made for this. And what she found in her research is that if you ask someone what keeps you connected, how are you connected, talk to me about your connections. People may mention one connection, but then they start talking about all the things in their lives that have keep, kept them from being connected. They talk about disconnection. So people gravitate to stories about betrayal, about hurt and pain. So what our research showed is that we talk a lot more about our pain than we do about our recovery. Okay, this led her into research about shame. Because what we can often do is we can try to shame people into obedience. There can be parents who shame their children into obedience but can ruin their spirit along the way. Let me try to give an example. Uh, I'm not sure if this is connecting, all right? But, okay, so if there are parents and you have a kid who lied, there can be a way where you try to shame them into never lying again. 
you're a liar, I don't trust you, I can never trust you again. Months go by and you still bring it up. Or there can be an approach of, look, I know you lied. And we may have to repair some trust. Um, But I need you to know that God did not create you to be a liar. This isn't who you were created to be. You were acting outside of who God created you to be. So we're going to work on what it means to be truth tellers in our family. Now, why I think this matters for the church is, and and forgive me if I've ever done this to you, but there can be preachers and teachers of the gospel and of the Bible who attempt to shame people into obedience and righteousness. There are people who have given their lives to Jesus before. They've been converted into Christ. They've experienced a conversion moment, and it's been more out of shame than it is the good news of Jesus calling you into to a new life. So there, there are people who have trusted in God for salvation and who have been baptized, who, who had hell and sin and damnation placed over them, and ultimately they made a decision because of what they didn't want to do or where they didn't want to go, yet they've still never said yes to the lordship of Jesus. I'm not saying baptisms haven't taken I'm not saying those salvation conversion moments haven't lasted and didn't matter for your life because God has worked through a lot of ignorance. He's worked through a lot of my ignorance before. All right, so when it comes to darkness and light, we don't pursue the light by sitting around talking about the darkness. And, and if we're not careful, what happens is we sit around with friends and we talk about how dark the world is and about North Korea and ISIS, and then we, the list goes on, but we don't take time talking about the good news of Jesus calling us into life, joy, hope, and this solid foundation. Um, we have a ministry here at our church and it's called Celebrate Recovery. I was with them last Tuesday night where they're talking about how they are overcoming darkness and forms of darkness and maybe addiction, but it is called Celebrate Recovery, not celebrating how you are broken. Because we come together as a church as broken people, but our narratives can't be about how broken we are and connecting in our brokenness is that we are connecting in our pursuit of the one who, recover, who leads us into recovery, into redemption and restoration. This is good news, right? Calling us into the light. This doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously or we don't name sin for what it is or we don't name darkness for what it is. Because there are times we've got to look sin and darkness in the face and say, this is your name. This is what you have done to me. You're not going with me into my future. I'm heading into the light. And we're pursuing recovery and redemption and restoration. And I want us to be a church that is coming alongside of broken people, taking their hands, leading one another into the light, which is Jesus. Uh, If you're on social media at all, or you've watched the news since the flood, you've seen a lot of images. How many dogs have you seen being rescued down in Houston, right? Dogs sitting on cars, pets. I haven't seen many cats being rescued. I'm not saying it's because dogs are more bad than you're born to cats. Maybe cats are smarter, right? They climb trees. They know how to save themselves. I don't know. There are a few images that just, the moment I watched them, the moment I saw them, I was like, man, that's an image of the church. If you go to this next one, this, this is one of them. And you've seen a few of these. Where there were cars that were being submerged and, and going underwater and then people would form these human chains to reach people who were in danger. And as they're forming a human chain, they're not sitting around saying, hey, before we form this chain, let's talk for a moment. Did you vote Republican or Democrat? Before we do this chain, I didn't know some of your convictions of who you are. It was like, man, no, this is just the right thing to do. Someone's hurting, and we're going to reach out, and we're going to get them. 
And as they're forming this human chain, it's not to get on top of a car of people who are in need of help and then sit there and talk about the flood and the brokenness. It's that we are reaching them to pull them into something that is better. And it's something away from the floods of life. And it's, isn't that who we are as a church? Forming these chains, reaching into the world, inviting people into the goodness and the glory and the praise of Jesus. Morning, if you, uh, for the elders, will you go to the places that you've been assigned? For the prayer leaders, will you go to the places where you've been assigned? Because this is one of the ways, one of the things we create to help form some kind of chain that's inviting you from darkness into light. So around the room, you see people moving to receive you for prayer. What we've tried to do in the church is we scatter people. And for, so for the people at Fawn over here to my right and our elders in the back, for, for them, they're just here. If you need somebody to pray with, they are here to pray with you. And if there's something you want to bring in front of the church, we go ahead and come all the way up here to the front where Kelly and Sam are here to receive you for prayer. Or if this is a day you want to surrender your life to Jesus, we're here to celebrate and to usher you into the waters this morning. Before we do that, can we stand together? Can we pray before we sing a couple of songs? Will you bow your heads where you are? If you're comfortable, just open your hands where you are to receive from the Lord. God, in this moment, there is, God, there's someone here, probably a number of people who would define their life right now so overwhelmed or under stress that it is hard for them to catch a glimpse of peace. So in this room, will you declare your peace over people? Pry open eyes that are shut, pry open hearts and maybe closed to see that there is a pathway to freedom that has been made available through Jesus. In this moment, as we sing a couple of songs, will you declare freedom over those who are in bondage, declare liberation, help people to get serious about forms of sin or darkness that need to, that need to go. May they give them over to you today as we trust deeply in you. Bring this church to life in every way imaginable through the resurrection of Jesus. It's in your name we pray.